All right, here we go. All right, so if you have your Bibles tonight, open up to um, the New Testament. Um, We got done with the Sermon on the Mount, and we're actually going to move on to a different book of the Bible. And we're going to be going through a series in the book of 1 John. So way toward the end of your Bible, um, 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, where tonight we're going to be looking at the first chapter of that. Um, Let's go ahead and read it, and then we'll get into it here in just a few moments. So 1 John chapter 1 says this, We proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen him. And now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father and then he was revealed to us. We proclaim to you, what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that you may fully share our joy. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say that we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In verse 8, it says, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. So have you ever wished that you could go back in history and experience some of those interesting things maybe that you read about in history class? Like, for instance, I'm kind of a nut about the Civil War. The American Civil War, to me, is just kind of just an interesting time in American history. I can hardly imagine what it had to have been like to be a soldier during that time in our nation's history. Um, But obviously, we can't go back and see that. But this week, I experienced maybe the next best thing. I actually listened to an interview. Um, I was scrolling through my little Rumble account, and on there um, was um, this interview with this man that was interviewed way back in 1946, a man that was 101 years old who happened to be an ex-Confederate soldier that had fought in the Civil War. And in this interview, um, it was just interesting to speak about. It was interesting to listen because he spoke about um, the battles that he, that he was in. He talked about his experience being a prisoner of war in a Union camp. He talked about the culture and just what it was like to, to live during that time of the 1860s when that um, American Civil War was going on. It was just something that was super interesting. You know, it, it's one thing to hear a historian talk about one of those events in history, but it's a whole other thing to actually hear from somebody's mouth who actually walked through it, who actually experienced those times. Now, what makes that so powerful is something that makes this book of First John so powerful to me. Today, again, as I said, we're going to begin this sermon series going through this, through this book and studying this word of, of this man, John, the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus, who talked with Jesus. 
He was with Jesus when Jesus was alive on earth. He was, he was a man who, who had faithfully continued to walk with Jesus for decades, even after Jesus went to heaven. And, and, and here, he was a man who could speak from authority about who Jesus was, about what Jesus taught, about what it meant to, to confidently and faithfully walk as a, as a, as a, as a blood-bought son of God, right? Because he was a Christian. He, he knew Jesus literally personally. He was one of his disciples. He was the brother of James, the son of Jebedee, who was, who was called out of that fishing boat to, to cast down their nets and to, and to go instead and go fishing for men, fishing for the souls of mankind. John was a man who was in the inner circle of Jesus. You had the 12 disciples, but then there was Peter, James, and John who were like his confidants, who were like his best friends in his ministry on earth. And, and so he was, and he was a man who was with Jesus all the way to the end of his life. He, he knew Jesus not only as his master and his Lord, but he also knew him as his friend. And so if anybody could speak with authority about Jesus, about who he was, it was the man that was there that had walked with him and talked with him and saw all those things personally. And now years later, decades later, towards the end of John's life, when John was an old man, he wanted people, these other Christians to know that the same companionship that he experienced with Jesus, the same friendship that he experienced as he walked with him, not only in those three years of his ministry, but the decades even after, he wanted them to know that they could experience the exact same thing in their life. Now before we get into um, the, this, uh, the verses for today, um, I just want to talk about a little bit of the background of this book as we get into it. Now, there's some speculation as to when John actually wrote this letter, but most theologians agree that it was sometime between 85 and 95 A.D., which again, which is like 50 to 60 years after Jesus had been here, died, and rose again. So 50, 60 years after he ascended to heaven, John wrote this. Um, this would have meant by this time that John was an old man, probably well into his 80s or 90s, and he was more than likely at this time the only remaining living apostle um, that there was left, the, the, the last one that had really walked and talked with Jesus personally. It's believed that, that John wrote this letter from um, his, what would have, would have been in his ministry center, if you will, in the city of Ephesus. Now, according to church history, um, from what's said as to be some of the early church fathers, some of these people that actually knew John personally, didn't know Jesus, but knew John personally, said that before Ephesus, he had actually been with Mary, Jesus' mother. If you remember at the cross, when Jesus was on the cross, he, he looked down to the disciple that he loved. He says, behold your mother, behold your son, right? And so it said that John took that, that, that charge from Jesus very, very seriously to take care of Jesus' mother, Mary. And, and so it said that, that he stayed with Mary in, in the Palestinian area there in, Jeru in Israel or whatever until um, Mary had passed on. And then after that, he, he picked up shop and he moved to the city of Ephesus where he became essentially a great spiritual authority figure there and provided um, oversight over the churches in that region. Now, this letter, nobody really knows exactly to who it was written to. It was written to churches, and it was believed to be what's known as kind of a, a cyclical letter, meaning it was kind of passed from church to church to church. And because his headquarters was in Ephesus, more than likely the churches that this went to were the churches we read about in the book of Revelation. Revelation was written just a few years after this book, um, and if it, it was those churches in Asia, 
Minor right there, which is kind of in modern-day Turkey. So most people believe that this letter was written out to them because these were the churches that he kind of exercised spiritual authority over at the time. Now, by this time in church history, many of these churches had been running for a few decades, and um, there had been a number of issues that had arisen in them. And you can actually read about some of these that the Apostle Paul dealt with, um, you know, in, in what are some of his letters to the, the Roman, to the Corinthians churches at Corinth or whatever, um, and, and that happened to be years before this. You know, Paul died like in AD 60-something, so this was 20, 30 years after these churches were dealing with that, and, and still here we're going to see throughout the course of this book that there was a lot of um, false teaching, false doctrine, what Jesus, or what, what John even calls um, these false messiahs or antichrists, if you will, that had risen up in the church. For instance, um, there was a man named Serinthus who taught that Jesus wasn't really an actual Messiah, but he was a man that the Messiah, or the Christ, kind of synonymous, right, used for his ministry. And this man taught and th- during this time that, that basically the Spirit of Christ came down on Jesus and the Spirit of Christ did the ministry through Jesus, did the miracles through Jesus, but, but when Jesus went to the cross, he left him, right? And, and so it was just this kind of crazy teaching that was going on there. And he basically he taught that Jesus was not born of a virgin, but he was just a mere man, the, the biological son of Mary and Joseph. And obviously, theologically, from what we know, that would be a problem. And so this, some of the background to what John is writing in this book. Um, there were also other false teachers of the day that said Jesus um, was the Messiah or the Christ, but that he wasn't a real man, but rather they saw him and taught that he was more like an apparition, um, like, like a ghost, if you will. He could be seen, but he couldn't be made out of man or matter, matter, like flesh and bone, because he was holy, right? And so he, he couldn't be touched. He couldn't, you couldn't have a relationship with him. And, and although true Gnosticism didn't arrive as mainstream um, until like the second century, um, it definitely started to take root at this time that John was writing. It said that one of the main teachings of the, the Gnostics, as they're called, was actually taken from the um, philosopher Plato, who had been around, you know, really hundreds of years before this. And, and basically what Plato taught was this. He taught that matter in itself was evil. Like anything we can look at, touch, feel, it was inherently evil, but the spirit inside of a man was good and holy. And, and so these Gnostics that were very prevalent during this time and, and really came into light more in the second century, basically they took this teaching to twist Christianity to, to be something that it wasn't. Some of the teachers um, that John was opposing at this time took that philosophy and said that Jesus couldn't have been fully man and fully God because God is holy and he couldn't be met, God can't be made out of matter, which is sinful. If he was a man, um, he, he'd have been evil, and if he was a Christ, that he, he, couldn't happen like that, right? So anyways, they, they use this philosophy also basically to teach that that because we as humans are made out of matter and we have a spirit, here's what they taught. Basically, our our spirit is holy no matter what, and what we do in the physical body really has no effect on how holy or righteous our spirit is. And and so essentially, um, a person can take part in any sinful thing they want to in the world because it has no spiritual effect on them. 
So you can have Jesus as Savior and live in the world if you want to, right? You can have your cake and eat it too was kind of the idea. And so these were some of the things that you're going to kind of see um, scattered throughout the book that the Apostle John is teaching on and kind of defending the true gospel against. Um, all of this, if you can imagine, caused a lot of problems and a lot of tension between the people and the churches. Um, and as we'll see later on, I mean, we're going to see that there was definitely some disunity amongst these Christians. So that's the basic background of the book. However, that's really not the heart of the book. And this is, these are some of the things we're going to see him teach against, but the heart of John in this book is really something different that I want to talk about here for just a moment. See, John was definitely addressing some serious issues in this letter, but here's what he was wanting, and we really saw from the first um, reading we, hear, we had here. John, in his life, through everything that he went through, he experienced the incredible joy of walking in intimate fellowship with his Lord. And not even just those three years that he had walked with them, he had walked with the Lord for his entire life. And what this book is about is he wants his readers to understand that they can have the exact same relationship with Jesus that he had experienced throughout the decades of his life. But to do that is going to require some things from us. And that's what we're going to start talking about here today as we hop into chapter 1. So John opens this letter by basically establishing his authority as an eyewitness to Jesus and his ministry. Again, something that these false teachers of the day, these antichrists, if you will, couldn't do. See, all these people that taught all those crazy philosophies, John had something they didn't. John was there. He saw Jesus. He talked with Jesus. He knew him personally, so, so he could speak from authority. Now, just think for a moment, if you will, what John experienced as a follower of Christ and what gave him the spiritual authority that he did, right? I mean, he, he, he saw Jesus in person. Um, he, he was there when Jesus taught the things that he taught. He, he was there to see Jesus walk on water. He was there to see Jesus just tell the storms and the wind and the waves to stop. Right? He was there. He was there when the lame were healed. He was there when, when Lazarus walked out of the tomb. He was there on the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah were there, and he heard that voice that says, This is my son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. John was there. He was a personal eyewitness to all of those things. And John was there in Acts chapter 1 on the mountain as Jesus gave that, that final thing in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 there. You'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea. The Holy Spirit's going to come. That, that whole thing. He saw him ascend on the cloud with the promise of return. John saw every single bit of it. So if ever there was an eyewitness that could attest to who Jesus was, it was him. Like, if anyone could refute the claims of these false teachers, these antichrist, it was him, because he was there. And so from the outset of this letter, he, he went to great lengths to do away with this assertion, this notion that Jesus was just some man or just some apparition of people's imagination. He wanted his readers, he wants us to understand who Jesus really was. And what we see even from the very beginning here in, in, in verse 1, he says, we proclaim to you the one who had existed from the beginning. What does he mean by that? He literally means that Jesus was there before anything was there. 
the beginning of the what? The beginning of time, the beginning of everything that we know. He was making a statement here that, that Jesus wasn't just any man. He was God Almighty in the flesh. Jesus wasn't just some ordinary person. He was saying that Jesus was there when the world was made. He had existed from eternity past. Before the first speck of matter ever came into existence, Jesus had already always been. He was there in the beginning. He goes on to say that it's not just that. He goes on to say that he was also the word of life. Now, to a Jewish man who grew up reading the Torah and grew up knowing Genesis, Exodus, I mean, they knew them by heart, right? When you talk about the spoken word, a Jewish person would exactly know what that means, and they would recognize that you're talking about God Almighty because of Genesis chapter 1. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let the waters of the land be separated. And God, you know, day 1 through 6. And so John makes this statement that he's not only from the beginning, that he is this word of life. Again, he's, he's making this claim that was made in the Gospel of John, as well in the book of Colossians by the Apostle Paul, that Jesus wasn't just a man, he was fully God. In fact, he was the God who spoke the words that created life itself, as we know it in Genesis chapter 1. Listen to what John wrote in the same John, in the Gospel of John, wrote this in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. And in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul repeats this, and he says that he is the invis- image of the invisible God, the, the firstborn or the preeminent one over all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, all things created through him and for him. This is who Jesus, or John says Jesus was. He wasn't, certainly wasn't just a man. A, a just a man couldn't do that. He was God. And then he goes on to verse 2 and he says, This one who is life itself was revealed to us and we have seen. Now what does that mean? That he was life itself. It means that life certainly was sustained by him. As Colossians 1.17 says, that he is before all things, and in him, in him all things consist, all things are held together. But, but he also means here that life finds its meaning in Christ. Life itself finds its purpose in the person of Christ himself. As John said in John 1 verse 4, in him was life, and this life was the light of all men. And so we think about Jesus, he, he defines everything. He not only holds our personal existence together, he's the one that holds all matter together, Colossians says, right? He, he's the reason we have breath in our lungs and, and our heart is beating every single day. It says Jesus is the reason, but, but even beyond the physical aspect of life, he's the meaning of it. This age-old question, what's the meaning of life? Jesus gives definition to what the meaning of life is all about, John says here. So he, he definitely says that he wasn't just some ordinary man, he was God, but he certainly was a man. It, it wasn't that he was just fully God, because that's what some of the Gnostics taught, that, that he was, you know, he was spirit for sure, but he couldn't have been man too. You, you can't have both. And yet John says here, yeah, as much as he was God, he was human. Because he says here in verse 1, we, we've seen him, we have heard him, with our own eyes we saw him, we touched him with our own hands. 
He's a, he was a physical being. It says in verse 2, we have seen them. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have actually seen and heard. And so John's like, look, I'm an eyewitness to this reality of who Jesus is. He's like, listen, folks, only God could do what this man did. I saw it. I touched him with my own hands. I heard him with my own two ears. I was there. Jesus was real. I don't care what these false teachers were, say, what these false teachers were saying. I witnessed it with my own two eyes. See, that's an authority figure right there because he was there and he saw it. And oh, by the way, he says, Jesus didn't just create life. It's not only that life is sustained by him. It's not only that life finds its meaning and purpose in him. In the second part of verse 2 here, he says, if you want eternal life, guess what? That comes through him as well. He says there, and now we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is, not just provides, but who is eternal life. We can't have it apart from Christ. Now, think about some of the things that John wrote in the Gospel of John. For instance, the familiar verse of John chapter 3 and verse 16, where it's, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, why? That whosoever believes upon him will not perish, but have what? Eternal life, everlasting life, right? And so he, he says here again in this first John that, that in him is eternal life. And the only way to get to where he is at is to go through him, as John chapter 14 and verse 6 says. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and there ain't nobody that gets to the Father apart from Jesus. Now, it's interesting what the second part of the first, like verse 2 there, he says, and we testify and proclaim to you that he is the one who is, etern he, who is eternal life. And look what he says here. He was with the Father, and then he was revealed to us. And so he was saying, before he ever came to earth as baby Jesus... He had been the Son of God forever. And, and if you want to get to where he is at, you have to go through him to get there. He was saying that Jesus was in heaven before any of us knew him, and he's back to where he always was with his Father in heaven. If you want to get to where his Father in heaven is, which is your Father, you have to go through him, right? I mean, it's, it's the only way to heaven. It's through Christ. I mean, just in those first few verses, John completely dissects the arguments of these false teachers that were teaching all this junk. He's like, I was there. And what they're teaching is not right because I saw it with my own two eyes. But you see, what John, John's relationship with Jesus wasn't just about what he had experienced in the past. It, it wasn't just about those three years that he had walked with Jesus. The fact was he had walked with Jesus for decades. In verse 3, he says this, Our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. He didn't say my fellowship used to be with Jesus. He said, present tense, my, I have fellowship with Jesus right now. Again, what's interesting about the way he says this and the tense that he says this in is, again, he spent three years in the literal presence of Jesus, but he speaks as if that relationship with Jesus never stopped. In fact, he speaks here that his relationship with Jesus is as close or even closer than it had ever been, even when he was with him personally. He didn't speak of this relationship as being a used-to-be relationship. It was a here and now reality 
in his life, and he spoke of this relationship, and it's this word in the Greek language called koinonia. Kind of a weird word, but it's an interesting word. And what this word means is this. It's not merely referring to two people who knew of each other. It speaks of two people who are in a close, intimate relationship with one another. And it's not some weird intimacy. That's not, we're not talking about some sensual intimacy here. It's the idea of two friends who walk hand in hand together through all life's ups and, ups and downs. It's about a partnership. It refers to two people that have an incredible bond of friendship, a companionship that can't be broken. This is the word that John uses to describe the relationship that he has had with Jesus for decades. A close companionship, a friendship. And what he had, as we see in verse 4, is what he said was available to all of us. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, we're writing these things, why? So that you may share our joy as well. I mean, that's what he says here. Now, question, where did, what was the source of John's joy? What does he say here? What was the source of his joy? In verse 3, we proclaim to you what we ourselves actually seen and heard so that we may ha- you may have fellowship with us. And what does he say next? And our fellowship is with the Father. And wh- that's the source of his joy. He was in a intimate relationship with God the Father and God the Son. Even though he was on earth, he was as close to Jesus as he had ever been in his entire life. And he says that relationship is available to all of us. That's what he wanted for all of God's people to experience this incredible unmatched joy of having a close and vibrant relationship with Jesus. Now, just an interesting note. John's the only living apostle left. And yet, you notice all the plurals in these first few verses? He doesn't just say, I proclaim to you. He says, we proclaim to you. What we have seen, what we have heard, we saw him, we experienced this. We have a relationship. He says, you can have a relationship with us and our relationship is with the Father. What was he talking about? See, John understood that It didn't matter if he was the only living apostle here. He understood that in Christ was life. Life was defined in him. John knew that the moment he died, he would be back in the presence of his friends because they were very much alive. You know, Peter, guess what? He may have lost his, he may have been hung on a cross, but guess where he was at? He was alive in heaven. He was sitting with Jesus. Oh, Paul may have lost his head, but he was very much alive. And he spoke of this reality as a present reality, even though they had been dead for decades. He said, look, I still have a relationship with my brothers. They're still my brothers. They may be on the other side. I may be here, but that connection still ain't lost. I haven't seen Jesus in 50, 60 years, but guess what? I still walk with him every moment of every single day. This is what John writes, and this is what he wants for all of us to experience that same intimate relationship with Jesus that he had. And throughout this book, we're going to see him tell us how that is possible and some of the things that hinder us from experiencing that intimate walk, that intimate fellowship with the Lord. And we're going to briefly hit on part of one here in the rest of chapter 1. 
And, and he says here that the key to having true fellowship with the Lord and experiencing um, the joy that comes with it only comes, as he, what he says here in verse 7, as we live in the light of God. Look what he says in verse 7 again. He says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And, and, who, and who did John say in verse 3 he had fellowship with? And our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, right? And so, presumably, he's saying here, as we walk in the light, not only are we going to, as brothers and sisters of Christ, going to have fellowship with each other, guess what? We have intimate fellowship with God the Father, with Christ His Son. We have intimate fellowship with all the saints that have gone before us, he says, and the blood of Christ covers us and cleanses us from all sin. So how do we do that? How do we, what does that even mean to walk in the light, to live in the light? And the best way I can describe this this week as I was thinking about this is this. Picture God here in all of his holiness and all of his splendor and all of his wonder and picture a, a, a light that surrounds him. In this light, there's obviously no darkness, but as soon as the, the, the barrier of that light stops, it's utter darkness blackness. And, and John says here, if we want to have fellowship with the Lord, we have to be within the circle of that light. Now, how does one initially enter into that light? Well, through relationship with Jesus. I mean, that's the gospel, right? We, we recognize we're a sinner. We recognize we are, we are in the darkness. We see the light and we want to enter in. So what do we do? We ask Jesus to come into our light, to be our Lord, our Savior, forgiveness, forgiveness of our sins, right? We get to enter into that light. But John speaks here that even as Christians, we can step out of that light. Now, John here is not talking about a salvation issue. He's talking to, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to born-again believers. And he's not saying that when we sin and step out of that light that we have to get saved. Alone. That's not what this is about. This is about us as Christians remaining in intimate, close fellowship with the Lord. The question is, how is that possible when we're a bunch of sinners? I mean, even as Christians, we're a bunch of sinners still, aren't we? Unfortunately, I mean, I, I wish it wasn't true, but I deal with it every day. I think all of us do, if we were honest. So, so how do we, as Christians, walk and stay within the light of God when sin exists in our life as a reality? I mean, just consider verse 5 for a moment. He says in verse 5 here, this message is what we heard from Jesus, and now declare to you that what? He says, God is light, right? And there is no darkness in him at all. So when it says that God is light here, he's saying that, that it's representative of God's holiness, of God's righteousness, of God's glorious presence, right? He's speaking of God as being absolutely pure, absolutely holy, with no trace of darkness in him. He defines light itself. Think about Genesis chapter 1, right? 
We get this picture of Genesis 1-1 in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and in darkness hovered over the face of the deep. That word darkness means absolute, utter, utter, complete darkness. Like one of those hands, I can't see my hand in front of my face, darkness. Absolute blackness. And it says, then the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Where did that come from? Because the sun wasn't created until a few days later. It was the presence of God himself that dispelled the darkness, that cast the darkness out simply by his holy presence. So when he says God is light, he's talking about the very definition of light itself. You know, in the book of Revelation where it says that there was no sun, because God is the light that we're going to, he's the, all, the light we're going to, his glory will shine up the earth, simply the very glory of his presence. He says he is light, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. What's the darkness? It represents sin, evil, wickedness, everything on the outside of this circle of light. And so the question again is, is if God is light and sin is darkness, how can we who are sinners be in continuous fellowship with God who is in the light? Because we're all sinners. And if you don't think so, let's read what verse 8 says. He says in verse 8, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and we are not living in the truth. So what's that tell you? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? Just like Romans says. And look at verse 10. He says, if we claim we have not sinned, it's that we, are, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. The Bible tells us we are sinners. Read Romans chapter 7. The apostle Paul spoke of himself as this dirty, rotten sinner. He's like, I just can't get rid of myself, and I can't wait for the day that I can, right? This is our reality. So how do we, with this reality, walk in continual fellowship with the Lord? Because Isaiah 59, 2 says that sin separates us from God. When we choose to sin, it's as if we who were once in this circle, remember, we're in this circle when we get saved, but when we choose to sin, we walk out of it. By our own choice, by our own free will, when we sin, we walk out of this circle of light. Now, what's the problem with the darkness? There's no joy. Because where's the source of joy? True joy. I'm not talking about some false imitation stuff, right? I'm talking about where is true joy, true fulfillment, true satisfaction. Where's that found? Only within the light of that circle. No matter what this world has to offer, it is not true joy. It is not fulfilling. It, is, it will not bring us the contentment that we desire as people. John says here that is only found within the circle of God's light. See, although we may still be saved and on our way to heaven, if we choose to live in darkness, we will never be able to experience what John's talking about here. Verse 6 tells us we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. Meaning when we live in sin, no matter what we believe, no matter how we feel, if we have active, ongoing sin in our life, we're lying to ourselves if we believe we had a close relationship with God. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Because you cannot walk in sin and walk in fellowship with God 
at the same time. See, if we're living in sin, that's the reality. Now, John's desire for us people is to experience the joy of the Lord. What are the things that rob us of joy? In your mind? Well, I mean, some people would say pain, suffering, loss, grief, trouble in the world, the news, <laughs> whatever. However, was John's life a cakewalk? Do you think maybe that his existence was probably a little more challenging than our spoiled existence is? And yet, in the midst of that reality of his life, the guy who experienced trial after trial after trial after trial, it didn't rob him of his joy. And so when we say, what robs us from our joy? Well, pain, loss, grief, all these different things. Only if you're walking in darkness. Because if you are in tight-knit, koinonia fellowship with the Almighty God, you're going to experience joy no matter what is going on in the world around you. So as we think about the point that he is making as we close, if we want to stay in the light, something has to change. But what about when we sin? How do we, how do we get back in, right? Because we, we're going to sin. Even the best of us sin. How do we get back in? Well, let's read probably the most familiar verse of this whole passage one more time in verse 9. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now, certainly this is true of an unbeliever, right? And, and most of the time this is quoted, it's quoted speaking of people who are not saved yet or still on the outside looking in, right? But do you realize in context that's not what this is saying? In the context of what he is saying, writing to Christians, he, here's what he's saying. He says, when we sin, we willingly walk out of the light. But God has provided a way for us to come back into fellowship with him, and it's confessing our sin. It's in prayer every single day as we sin, moment by moment, we recognize sin in our life. Here's what happens. I mess up. I smash my toe, say a bad word. I can do one of two choices. I can walk out and exit into the darkness, or I can take a moment and say, God, forgive me. I've just sinned against you. And, and when we confess that sin, he, he says this is the way we gain access to the light and stay connected to him. Because the reality of our life is we're, if we're lying to ourselves, we think we're not sinners. Obviously, as we're going to see next week, the, the goal is to not sin. I mean, that's obviously the goal is just to walk as purely and, and holy as possible, but we're human. We have a human nature, and it's going to happen. But if we want to stay connected to him and close fellowship with him, when sin happens, confess it. Don't hide it. Don't conceal it. The man who conceals his sin that will never prosper, the book of Proverbs says, right? But, but if he who confesses finds mercy, God is a merciful, incredible God. And here's the beauty of all this. He wants our fellowship. He, he wants 
to walk with us, to talk with us. He wants us to experience His love and His joy. He doesn't have to do it. He wants to do it. It hurts Him when we're on the outside in the darkness. He is drawing us back. He's saying, come, come back into the light. Come back into my fellowship. And the only way we do that is by confessing sin. And as we do, He forgives that sin. It says He, he comes in. And, and I want to just read one more thing here. He says this in verse 7. If we are living in the light, when we, when we exist inside of the circle, if you will, as God is in the light, we have fellowship with each other in what? And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. You know, there's, there's one of these things that, that theologically it's hard to understand because there is this reality that when we come to faith in Christ, our, our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. They're, they're just, they're, they're just vacated. They're, they're gone, Right? Past, present, future, sins are, our, 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 our place in heaven is absolutely secure. But there's also a relation, that's like the legal side, if you will, right? The, the legal side of our, of our Christian relationship, there's a legal document signed through the blood of Christ, right? We're sealed. But relationally, in reality, we can break that bond of fellowship with the Lord that happens through sin. And the only way to get back at this is, is to confess that. And as we get back into that light, that, that, that where the blood of Jesus is at, it, it, it gives us a picture of when we walk back into there, we're cleansed and purified once again. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. And if we want to experience the joy of God's fellowship, it starts with walking in purity. And we'll see in, in the weeks to come, there's a lot more that has to do with it, but that's where he begins, is saying, walk in the light. So what do we do with this um, as we close? We should reflect and ask ourselves this. Are we experiencing the joy of the Lord? You in your life, is this between you and Him, do you, are you experiencing joy or not? Are you living your life's existence within the light right now? Or do you feel like you're walking in darkness? You know you're saved. It's not a question of salvation. But are you connected to Him? And whatever that is between you and the Lord, He says here the answer to that is confess it. And He'll draw you back in. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for this time. Thank You, God, for Your Word. Thank You, God, for this incredible, incredible, encouraging message. Father, that, that, that we can experience You personally. Father, God, I just love this picture because so often... I think when people think about being a Christian, it's just about living a certain way or doing certain things or going to church or this. But God, John says here, it's not about what we do or don't do. It's about a relationship with you. A relationship, God, that you desire us to have with you. And God, as your word says here, the only thing that hinders that is our sin. And so, Father, for, for those of us that have already made the decision to follow you um, as our God, to, to, to receive your Son as our Savior, God, help us and give us the strength to walk within your light, to, to always daily, God, to do an inventory in our life, to, to see where we are at. And if there's sin, God, that we would, you would just give us the, the grace and the strength to confess that and stay connected to you, Lord. But again, I would say that, that there, there may be one or two in here, Lord, that has never made the decision even to start with. And they really are in the darkness on the outside looking in. And, and God, your word gives a remedy for that as well, and it's through Christ. It says here tonight, Lord, that he, Jesus is eternal life, God, and, and I just pray that they would recognize that and see that, that if they want life after this one, 
and it only comes through Christ, confessing him as their Lord and their Savior. Father, we love you. We thank you. We praise you for all of these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we close, we're going to... Uh,